0: Hi everyone, FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually, it is a pandemic after all, so please excuse any funky audio issues, you know what I mean. Welcome back to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge, along with my co-host Brad Hutnick, and we are both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry. Well, Brad, we're back, we're still recording, and no one has pulled the plug. That can only mean one thing.
1: So, what, they can't find the plug? Or
0: we hit the plug, which wouldn't be (laughs) the first time, right? Yeah.
1: We don't want anyone finding this plug. We're going to keep that thing under wraps. I'll tell you that.
0: That's right. Say, hey, guess what? Today, I brought a prize possession from my office.
1: So first off, you have prize possessions. That's like, that's a revelation. Because I kind of picture you like a Dr. Evil sitting in a white room with a case of old style or something. You know, but <laughs> you have prize possessions.
0: I do. Uh, a few. And today... I have a prized possession, which is a tree cookie. And guess how old it is. Just guess, Brad.
1: Well, it's old enough to get you excited.
0: Certainly is. This is a 486-year-old red cedar. It was growing on a bluff on the Mississippi River near Prairie du Chien. And I want to thank forester Bill Carlson for getting this cookie for me. Look at the annual rings on this thing. It always amazes me how slowly this tree grew and managed to stay alive for centuries, literally centuries, Brad.
1: Well, I have to admit that is amazing. Uh, Bill, wherever you are, you know you can use an increment board to age trees, too. We don't well, to cut them all down, right? Actually, I mean,
0: Bill didn't cut the thing down. Somebody else cut it down. It was sitting as a chunk of wood in the Gaze Mills Forestry Office, if you must know. But thanks, Bill.
1: Well, the cool part about the cookie though, and I have to admit this is that if you if you do that, then you can kind of read the history and see what happened to it. So you can catch some fire scars and things like that. And actually every time I see one of those, I'm surprised there aren't a lot more fire scars. But I imagine that surviving for that long, the tree might've been on a rock outcrop or maybe fire protected.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know the exact location of it, but there aren't many fire scars on this particular segment of it. There are a few but knowing how frequent fire was in Southwest Wisconsin
1: over that time period, you would think there would be more. Nice segue. We know fires were an infrequent and defining disturbance in Southern Wisconsin, but most of us until recently didn't realize how important fire was in shaping the forests of Northern Wisconsin and the UP, particularly the mixed conifer forests. Luckily, we have a guest who loves tree ring data and who can provide us with new insights into the historic role of fire in these forests and what may also make us about future management options. Today's guest is Jed Meunier, research scientist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources Division of Forestry.
0: Excellent, but before we bring in Jed, let's not forget our sponsor. Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by Beeline Industries. You know their slogan, You don't want to go any lower than us.
1: Where do we get these sponsors? Haley, we aren't paying them to be sponsors, are we? We should be.
0: Welcome to SilvaCast, Jed.
2: Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. Hey, good
0: to have you, Jed. Hey, Jed, not everyone may know this, um, but you have some pretty incredible family role models in ecology, conservation, forestry, your grandmother was Nina Leopold Bradley, and of course, your great grandfather was Eldo Leopold. How do you think they influenced the work that you do today?
2: Um, well, Greg, it's it's a neat history, um, and my personal path has sort of crossed, personally and professionally, um, with. With with Aldo's and even my grandmother over time, um, not really by design but by accident, in some pretty interesting ways. Including Aldo um, made some really important early observations on the on on fire. And um, one one thing that Aldo really was a big fan of, what he taught his family and and friends and students, was reading the landscape. And my grandmother really passed that on to us and to me. Mm. And and that's kind of I do a lot of different things in my work, but one of the things I love most is is really that process of of learning to read the landscape.
0: Mhm. And do you consider yourself a dendrochronologist or is that just kind of the area that you're in and and maybe explain what is that?
2: Yeah. Well, so I, I am a dendrochronologist among other things, but um, <laughs> it's a it sounds like an important title, but it's really just a Latin word. Dendro meaning tree, chronology study of time. So it's literally the study of time through trees, and and it's one of my passions. Um, and it it's a it's a really it it, it it's a it's a really neat uh, tool really is tree rings. We can learn a lot through tree rings, and mm-hmm. I, I have to point out. It's not the same thing as just counting rings. Um, it's a science. So we can actually take uh, the, the, the cedar cookie that you mentioned. If I didn't know when that cedar was living, was born, grew, or died, I could presumably with the science of dendrochronology figure all that information out.
0: I, I know I went out with you and your team Looking at red pine stumps, which I thought was really fascinating on how you looked into those different uh, stump samples and compared it with the existing stand that was living. Uh, can you explain t- a little bit about so so how do you build that his that fire history, that record, yeah. on a site over many, many years by doing that?
2: Well, good question. so that that's getting into the nuances of dendrochronology. And what that is, is it's a tool we, we use called cross dating. So we could find a tree that's living that maybe is 100 years old and we might find a recently dead tree that overlaps with the living tree but takes us further back in time, maybe another 100 years if we're lucky. Um, and then that recently dead tree could o- then overlap with a, a longer dead tree. And what that means is that Every tree will will show a drought period differently than its neighbor will. Um, However, a drought year is is gonna be relative to the rings around it for all trees is gonna be a narrow ring. And so we can learn those narrow ring patterns over time. They're faithful recorders. And so we use cross dating and these narrow rings to figure out these patterns over millennia. And so the guy who developed that method, this is an interesting tidbit of history, his name was A.E. Douglas, and he founded the science of dendrochronology. He was actually an astronomer looking for sunspot activity through rings and stumps of ponderosa pine in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so he he built this, you know, about a 700-year chronology through tree rings, and now that chronology is closer to 10,000 years. So we have 10,000 years of Climate history uh, of of you know we've reconstructed water flows in the Colorado River. We've um, calibrated radiocarbon dating through tree rings. Um, There's fun stories about other fire ecologists like me who've who even have uh, uh, authenticated a Stradivarius violin, the most presumably the most valuable instrument in the world, a twenty million dollar or more um, violin, Mm -hmm. and the its authenticity was in question. And so this fire ecologist by the name of Henry um, Henry Grissino Mayer, he used this cross dating and dendrochronology technique to, to figure out not only that it was indeed a Stradivarius violin, but what made those instruments so special. And so some of the finest instrument makers in the world have tried to replicate the quality of that violin maker's instruments without success. And what Henry figured out was that it was the materials that um, Antonio Stradivari was using at the time. Those spruce backs on those instruments grew during the Little Ice Age. Um, So it was this cool, wet, anomalous period climatically that made these uniformly wide uh, ring growth that actually resonated the music so beautifully (laughs) that we haven't had since. And where it comes around. To Douglas is that one of the, the um, that the Little Ice Age was actually a period of uh, unusual sunspot activity. And so it was, of course, sunspot related, why we had that period. And um, mm-hmm. Douglas is the one who helped us crack that.
0: Wow, that's, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and it's great to have, you know, knowing that you have this tool available to you, Jed, and you can actually use this gives us a lot of capabilities for learning new things about our forests here in Wisconsin. So recent papers that you've published have looked at fire dendrochronology for red pine and maybe fire in northern Wisconsin. Um, what have we, you've done a lot with that and there's been some really groundbreaking stuff that come out of it. What are some of the things that you learned through that? Well,
2: we're we're learning a lot and I would say we're, we're taking the first steps really. Um, a lot of this kind of work has been done in other parts of the country and we're, you know, um, including the climatology, but certainly the forest ecology and the disturbance patterns. And so we've we've been combing through Wisconsin, uh, looking for old, mostly red pine. And the reason it's mostly red pine is that uh, red pine are real resinous. Their Latin name is Pinus resinosa, well named, they're a resinous pine. So the resins help preserve the wood over time. And when they've survived fire, they get even more resinous. So the wood tends to last a very long time. So we can get datable samples from the old stumps. And most of these stumps were cut down in the, up, you know, somewhere between um, 1860 to, to 1880. Um, so they're, they've been, you know, standing as stumps in the woods for more than a hundred years when we're getting after them. And so what's really interesting is red pine are, are, are meant to survive fire. Some species, like jack pine, reproduce primarily by being the parent tree being destroyed in the fire and then reproducing well after a fire. But red pine are different. They're resistant, so they survive these fires. But once in a while, the fire gets hot enough to damage the cambium, the growing tissue, and create an injury on that tree. And the tree then tries to heal over that. And once they've been injured, every fire subsequently Uh, uh, leaves another mark, another fire scar. And so we routinely find stumps with 15, 10, 15 fire scars. So not only can we tell things like when the tree grew, when it when it recruited into the stand, but we can also determine what year these fire events were. And not only what year, but even sub-annual resolution at times. So sometimes you can even tell the position of that fire scar within the annual ring and get some indication of whether it was um, a dormant season fire or a growing season fire. So it's pretty cool and we've been we've been unraveling that puzzle now for a while. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I was fascinating. Some of that you can actually look at how frequently the fires occurred and it seems like that kind of has this cascading effect or maybe it kind of leads to other things being present on the ground or being able to see things just based on how frequently you have fires. Yeah.
2: yep. So you know we have um, some information in this region on on fire history, and most of that information has come from interpretations of the general land office notes at the time of European settlement.
1: So Jed, you've had several papers kind of looking at the dendrochronology work that you've done, and I was really struck by one of the findings you found that fires were much more frequent uh, in this in the landscape in northern Wisconsin than maybe what we thought uh, prior to your work. What are some of the implications of that?
2: Well, yeah, the the implications are are potentially are huge. Um, you know, just thinking about red pine more generally, the way we typically think about red pine, and maybe even pine generally in northern Wisconsin and then the Great Lakes region, is that we had these sort of punctuated events. So we had mortality, stand replacing fire, and then we had a punctuated event of recruitment. We had new trees being born out of that. And so the implications are that we think about these systems as being even age, um, punctuated mortality and recruitment events, and we manage for them that way, whether it's in pine plantations or just sort of hands-off management of our natural origin pine. And, you know, as an aside, we don't have a lot of natural origin old pine to really evaluate and study. We have, I think, Lee Frelick in Minnesota has estimated that we have um, 0.6% of remaining, you know, quote-unquote, old growth relatively intact natural origin pine stands but anyways it's a small number we still have our native species of pine scattered around but you know this we could probably debate what relatively intact means but essentially from my perspective it's about pattern and process so one of the papers that i wrote recently is got both those words in the title and really all that means is that you know the process is the fire, and the fire did lots of things. Um, probably for these pine stands, some of them are measurable, some some aren't. Um, but one thing we can measure is the pattern. And so, you know what we found by by coming up with recruitment dates of these old red pine stumps, and we've also spatially mapped them. We found that largely these 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 pine stands were not even-aged. In fact, I don't know that we found an even-aged pine stand of, 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 of at least 26 different stands we worked in. Um, none of them were even-aged. They were always multiple cohorts. On some of them, it would be even hard to define a cohort. So essentially what was happening is you had fairly, frequent, again, going back to that frequent fire, you had fire occurring periodically, meaning every six to 10 years, over hundreds of years. And sometimes some trees died, probably even mature trees. Many of the smaller trees died, but some were spared. Fire is very heterogeneous and it missed some seedlings and it killed some <laughs> seedlings. So you you had this over time, what that what that did was it made for a really different sort of pattern. So you had um, probably more multi-age cohorts or, or age distributions in a stand, and you had relatively constant but low level of mortality and a relatively constant but low level of recruitment. So in, in essence, it's almost the opposite of the way we've thought about these in the past and the way we manage managed them. And Jed, uh, you found most of those fires were
0: sort of uh, low-intensity fires, is that correct? And that's what would have allowed a lot of these pine to survive, but kind of make that more patchy nature of mortality and survival?
2: Great question, Greg. It's, so I will be honest, you know, fire scar methods, so these are trees that survived fires, multiple fires usually, and left Mm -hmm. evidence of it. So we're, my these methods are biased towards the low, medium severity fires. There are other ways that we can learn about high severity fires, which were always a part of these systems as well. But scale, I think there matters. So, you know, if you have a group of trees that crown out and get torched, that's very different than the stand at a stand level or a land level. But essentially, um, the fire scars are really evidence of low severity fire um, that we're, we're looking at. And so mm-hmm. we take tree cores, so we also can take tree cores of all the living trees, and we get cookies or sections out of the, the remnant wood, meaning the recently dead or the stumps. And so we can reconstruct stand structure. And actually that stand structure gives us an indication of the high severity event. So if we, if, you know, if we found um, patches of even age stands, that's kind of different line of evidence than just looking at the fire scars, the evidence of low severity fire. So we think we have a pretty good idea of at least the stand scale of what was happening in these stands.
1: So Jed, thinking about foresters who might be familiar with fire in oak systems, you know, we've read a lot about that, we've learned a lot about fire in oak systems. How are, are, is fire fundamentally different in how it's playing out in pine systems versus oak systems?
2: Um, That's a tricky question. On, On its surface level, I could, you know, you could say that fire was we know fire was frequent in say oak savanna and prairie and and oak is also a fire dependent species like i I've, I've been describing for red pine um, so on its on the su- surface level yes they they both require fire at some level you know going back to lee frelick he had, he um you know he's he's pointed out that there's no fire frequency that would have favored pines over oaks So in Wisconsin, we have this unique pattern where pines are mostly relegated to northern Wisconsin. They're a northern species, although they occur in southern Wisconsin, Um, especially jack pine and red pine. And then um, oaks are more of a southern species, although, again, they they occur in northern Wisconsin. But what's always fascinated me is one of the oldest stands of pine that we found anywhere, including some of the, the oldest living red pine in Wisconsin, was a place just south of Dane County. Uh, it might have been in Dane County actually. It's a it's Trout Creek Fisheries area of really old old pines. Um, that's that's what we call a pine relic. So that's a northern community that exists in southern Wisconsin and an oak system, an oak savanna system. And again, you know, you can we can make that parallel go in the other direction. There are old red oak, for example, in in Bayfield County. So. Um, Climate um, has something to do with that. Disturbance probably has something to do with that, but we really don't have it all worked out. At least I don't, so it's something that I think about. So Jed,
0: trying to uh, pull this together, you kind of painted a picture for us of frequent fires uh, throughout northern Wisconsin and the Great Lakes more frequent than you know, maybe we thought of in the past and larger scale, May, maybe not stand replacing fires, but these low level fires that did impact the structure and made these stands, you said, maybe more of an uneven aged structure or multi-cohort sort of um, structure. So thinking about what does that mean for us today, managing these conifer stands or these mixed conifer stands uh, what do you think foresters can take away from that in terms of applying management?
2: Yeah, that that's a great question. So, our, you know, one one thing we found. So we visited a, about thirty different natural origin red pine stands, and um, we found almost no regeneration of red pine in any of those. Um, you know, carrying it forward into thinking about climate change. Red pine is a projected climate change loser. We're supposed to lose red pine in the state of Wisconsin. Something that I like to say is that, you know, we're talking about managing for the end of the 21st century, and we haven't even started managing for the beginning of the 20th. I mean, red pine is a fire-dependent species, and if we think we can regenerate it without fire, we're finding it, it, it may not be possible, and so, you know, what, what, this, what this stand structure and, the, and the, some of this fire history information is telling me is that, you know, there was a lot of heterogeneity in these forests and that, you know, when we think about a first line of defense with climate change or some of these issues that we're dealing with, you know, resilience is really rooted in heterogeneity. So I think we can manage for that heterogeneity we don't always have to do it with fire we can we can probably do a lot with just thinking about civiculture under new new and a new light um, mm-hmm. and there are times when you know we may get part of the way there with with different sort of civil cultural treatments and there are times when we may need fire so again not to get too um, theoretical but you know i've mentioned these words pattern and process it's really you know some of it is just, we can replicate that pattern, I think, fairly easily, mm-hmm. or at least we can learn to do a better job of adding heterogeneity and, and, and mixing up that pattern. Sometimes it may be the process, and we don't fully understand what we're losing by not using fire. So we may not have fruiting blueberries, mm-hmm. and if we want that, we may have to burn it. So anyways, I think there's a lot we can we can do um, in terms of manipulating red pine to one, get regeneration, because if we don't figure that out and the lifespan of the current natural origin stands, we're gonna lose it unless it's in straight roads. And we don't need, you know, I don't think we need to be burning a half a million acres a year or, you know, burning every 10 years necessarily. But I think we can use that as sort of sideboards for ways that we can add heterogeneity into the forest ways that we can manage for more resilient forests
1: yeah and so heterogeneity really maybe boiling this down for a manager it might be variety so we should have a variety of ages sizes maybe uh, densities within the stand just across the board kind of think more about that and less about the uniformity that we might have yeah in the past. you know
2: I think you know, not to take us too far west but you know there's a a forester, Jerry Franklin, who he he's a really interesting guy, and and he and some of his students have come up with a with a with a um, with guidelines for managing for um, dry pine forests in the west, and I think some of those lessons are probably transferable to our part of the world. We we should be learning about them at at the very least, and maybe trying some of this out. But they, it's a you know they're using what they call individual clumps openings, so they're they're trying with their marking schemes. They're trying purposely to add that heterogeneity. So not, you know, not. It's not about trees per hectare, and it's not necessarily about a basal area target. Sometimes it's about how you put those in. So clumpy, groupy, things like that. And that, yeah. you know, yeah. as as we think about the, you know, going back to that idea of pattern. So we can learn about process through pattern too. So. You know, if if it was really, but if it was climate and competition that were really shaping these stands primarily, then you'd expect more uniform spacing and 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 age patterning. But we didn't see that, and so we we have a pretty good sense that it was disturbance shaping them, and it left this this heterogeneity, mm-hmm. this clumpy, groupy pattern, and. Um, there are times when that might work for us, and there are times where it, we may hit a dead end, and we we have to think about it. And you know, there's shoot blight diseases. Um, there's there's other factors that we we need to consider. Um, but I think we could do a much better job at at managing for for that yeah. Yeah. It,
1: And it's it strikes me as ironic that. And Greg, I know we've talked about this, and and I think we, i mean even picked it up in a webinar someplace, but. The irony is that with a lot of these fire systems, looking back at how they operated and actually looking, looking, basically looking at those systems for resilience gives us a clue on how we want to move forward with these sites. And so restoration is actually forward looking in a lot yeah, of these situations.
2: Brad, yeah, Brad, that's exactly right. You know, one thing I, I failed to mention, so it's pretty well established that pines that have seen fire develop more resin ducts and resin ducts are really their first line of defense for drought for pests and pathogens so when when you have an insect boring into a, a tree it can pitch out and drown that insect so anyways there's pretty good evidence even at a you know at a at a individual tree level that have a tree that's seen fire ha- has has that kind of resilience as well so it scales potentially up from an individual tree to a landscape. The way these fire-resistant stands fit into a, you know, a resilient landscape, Mm -hmm. the way a, a, you know, a resistant individual tree fits into a resistant stand. So anyways, it's really interesting.
0: So foresters, what you're saying is foresters may want to be looking at that process part and reintroducing fire more frequently into the stands, but Knowing that that doesn't happen in all stands, they can also look at um, the structure of these stands too, uh, and and look at creating those kind of you know individual group openings sort of structure to add that heterogeneity uh, and resilience to these stands. So so there's kind of multiple pathways to maybe get at some of this stuff depending on what the objectives are for the area and what the abilities of the forester and the land managers are to do certain treatments.
2: Yes, yeah.
0: Does that makes sense? It does.
2: Yeah, I don't think, I mean, there are certainly going to be areas where fire might be incompatible with other goals, and that, that we just have to recognize that. Um, I think we, you know, there's been work up in Minnesota that hasn't used fire, but they've uh, manipulated structure and they've documented greater drought resilience and red pine there. Um. So we we can make a real headway um, with just with making more heterogeneity and structure. I think we also. I think it's a. I think we do need to start learning more about the process end. Like, what does fire bring mm-hmm. us? You know. And I think regeneration is a good example of that. And it's not for every stand. There are a lot of places where we don't want or need to regenerate red pine with fire. But I think we should know how to do that. And there are areas that certainly we. Hmm. I like that way of thinking about
0: the forest stands in terms of both thinking of the pattern and the process and how those things work together and maybe how I can incorporate those things into the management that I'm doing. Um, it's just kind of a neat way to think about it.
2: Well there's a lot we can do you know going back to your red cedar um, we we also have a real resource in Wisconsin. We don't have five uh, thousand year old bristlecone pine, but we do have old trees here, and oftentimes they're they're not the most magnificent trees you've ever seen. They're hanging onto to a rock face, and they're a red cedar along um, the Mississippi bluffs, or or it's a white it's a thousand year old white cedar at the uh, new, um, up in uh, on the Niagara Escarpment. So we have really old trees in this part of the world, too. Um, and there's a lot we could be doing with those in terms of understanding our climate and some of our our, our history as well.
0: Yeah. And and uh, with that, Jed, I think we really look forward to the continued work that you're going to do uh, in these areas with our division of forestry and and the things that we're going to learn because there's just an endless amount that uh, we can learn from these systems so.
1: Jed I look forward to when you bring something out because it always blows my mind and I always have to wrestle with it for a little while and then once I wrestle with it then I'm okay so keep (laughs) blowing my mind. I'm
2: glad you keep winning Brad that's important too.
0: So thanks Jed for joining us today.
2: It's been a pleasure
0: fun to talk with you guys thank you. That was our guest Jed Mounier. And if you'd like to read more about his recent papers on fire in the Great Lakes Pine Forest, we will post them on our show notes.
1: That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever is on your mind, silviculture related that is, and share it on each podcast. Now, Greg, I don't want to scare you, but today we actually have an email from a listener
0: a real listener
1: actually this proves we actually have listeners so we have a listener we do have a question and i'm sorry just a comment and this is from chase in boulder junction and he he was basically writing with some ideas about things we might cover in the future climate change and assisted migration Mm -hmm. and indigenous knowledge and tribal forestry and i think those are both really good ideas i think we should pursue those yeah
0: no i think we'll add those to the list And if anybody has any other ideas, please submit them to the Dropbox. And the other thing in the Dropbox, too, if you have any silviculture-related questions, we're going to try to answer some of those uh, in the future as well. So keep that in mind, everybody.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Silvacast. Good, bad, or otherwise. Do you have ideas for future silviculture topics? Something for the Dropbox? let us know. We can be contacted at UW-Stevens Point's Forestry Education and Development Initiative by emailing fedi at uwsp.edu.
0: All right, Brad. Take care, everybody. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Frater, our Editor-in-Chief at Fedi, and our IT master, Noah Lemaid. And a special thanks to UW-Stevens Point's Forestry Education and Development Initiative.
1: Thanks for listening.